Today, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be made in the image of God, and then what does it mean uh, when the Bible says that we sin or that we're sinners. So the first thing that we are going to want to tackle is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We say the phrase, the image of God, a lot. Maybe you throw out the Latin phrase, the imago dei, but oftentimes it's not defined. So our first step has to be to define what the image of God is. What is it? What does it mean? And you know, actually, the funny thing is, is we'll have to avoid the temptation to make too much of God's declaration in Genesis that all human beings are created in the divine image. Christians for a long time have packed a lot into that little phrase that actually only appears a couple of times in the Pentateuch. There's been a lot of theorizing about what makes us the image of God. Is it our ability to think, our ability to create and to have dominion, our capacity to reason and conceptualize? But the problem really is, is that the Bible is kind of silent on some of these matters when it comes to being made in God's image. So if those things are true, uh, they, they, well, they may well be, but that's not really where the Bible lays its, image, uh, its emphasis. Being made in God's image, as far as the Bible's storyline goes, is less about what we do and more about who we are. So image is less about what human beings do and more about who, who human beings are. It's less about our nature and more about our identity. And you can see that defining image as only the things that we do runs the risk of denying that people who have disabilities or are otherwise vulnerable, like children, are made in God's image. What happens if someone isn't able to think well? What if their capacity to reason is compromised by age or their DNA structure? You know, I think that you can see the issue here. But we can avoid that issue of thinking of people who have disabilities or have their capacities limited for whatever reason. We can avoid the slippery slope of saying they're not actually image, they're not made in the image of God, by thinking about the idea of image theologically, which is what I hope that we're going to do today. The Bible's presentation of human beings made in God's image is fundamentally about human identity, who we are. The stuff about human nature that maybe you thought we had spent most of our time talking about our will, our capacity to reason. Are we body, soul, and spirit? Or are we just body and spirit? Are we trichotomy? Are we dichotomy? Not going to touch it. All that's at best secondary to what God is seeking to communicate whenever he reveals in his word that we are created in his image, male and female, a unique status among all creation. Let's, uh, let's read, if you have your Bibles with you, let's read Genesis 1, 27 through 31 together. Genesis 1, 27 through 31. I should have put my little tassel in there. All right. 1, 27 through 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that he, everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, the question we need to ask as we think about image is what would Moses' readers, his original readers, have thought whenever they read that word image? 
whenever they read that human beings are created as God's images or in the image of God. Well, most likely, given that what we know about that time period, they would have thought of statues, images, uh, icons made of pagan kings that paid tribute to the false deities that they served. So that uh, these statues represented that little g false god and its claim of authority over the realm in which it was situated. So if you want to know what that little god is like, that little g god, the false god, you would look at his image. You'd look at this statue. You would look at uh, this, uh, this representation of that god. So what is God teaching us about ourselves whenever he says we are his image, the true God? Well, being created in God's image means we were created in a special relationship to him. And we're supposed to represent him with our hearts, minds, souls, and strength in glad worship and in obedience to his word. Being made in God's image signifies a covenantal relationship. Even though in Genesis, the word covenant's not there, there is an arrangement between two parties wherein God says, I'm going to create you for my glory and in my image. He created us with a special purpose that he didn't create any other creatures. And uh, we actually see that, he ha that we have dominion over the other creatures, which we'll talk about in a second. We are made to tell the truth about God's character with our lives, to reflect his triune glory with our lives, so that it's not what we do that makes us the image of God. We are images of God. So it's not the things we do that make us become image. We do those things because we are the images of God. We are icons, representatives of God by creation in a way that no other beings are. But we do see that there are things attached with doing, living out, being image. We have in Genesis 1 and 2, God giving his image bearers a job description, if you will. Fill the earth, multiply, subdue it. God's original image bearers, Adam and Eve, were given the task of keeping the garden pure and extending its borders to the corners of the globe. Human beings were tasked with ruling and reigning over creation underneath God's kingly authority. So you'll hear the designation vice regents given, which just means you're ruling underneath of. So they are an extension of God's delegated authority. We were created in that sense to be royalty, to be servants of the most high God. And we we're supposed to be full of joy and satisfaction in that relationship as we live before the face of God. And being made in this image means we owe everything to God, our lives, our affections, our love, our obedience. God created us to display his glory representing his character and ultimately that's going to set up what makes sin so bad because we were created for this purpose by the creator of the universe and yet we shirk that adam and eve turned from god to themselves and to the things that god created uh, there in genesis 3 which we'll get to as we talk about uh as we talk about uh the idea of sin let's see let's we got people waiting in the Chilling in the waiting room. Anybody uh, know that song? Hello, everybody. Sorry, we left you hanging in the waiting room. Um, we have only talked about, so far, what it means to be created in the image of God. So it, that's all. That's all we've done. Um, let's just recap. Being created in God's image means we are created by God in a special relationship, a covenantal relationship, to represent him and to live before him in obedience 
and in joy and in love. And it speaks not really to the things we do as much to who we are. We are God's images. And that's the case with us all. So we talked about human beings created in God's image. But the question now, after the fall, after Adam and Eve did that first sin and sin came into the world and with sin came death, the question is, are human beings still the image of God after the fall? Are people after the fall still properly designated as being in the image of God? Yes. That's the short answer. Yes. So we see when God destroys the earth with the flood that he preserves Noah and his family in the ark. And so he's preserving for himself a people to continue his saving purposes with. So he doesn't destroy everybody completely, even though all of them deserved it. But Noah found favor and that God placed his favor on Noah and his family and promises to use them and their line to continue his saving purposes. We actually see in Genesis 9, 7, that Noah is given the same job description as Adam and Eve were in the garden. We see the, uh, the commands to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. So human beings are still unique from the rest of creation and possess that inherent value as those made in God's image. We're still image. But you will notice that it has changed drastically. So Whereas image isn't destroyed, it is heavily distorted. There's something missing from Genesis 9 that was present in Genesis 1. You'll notice that Noah is not told to uh, subdue the earth as Adam was before. Why? Well, I think it's because sin has been introduced into the world. And through Adam's sin, the possibility of the human success at that original job description for the spread of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea is no longer in play. So now work is hard. Childbirth is painful. Right before this verse in verse six, God prescribes government to curb the results of an evil people living together. So he's in things aren't as they used to be. That harmony of people living in right relationship with God is broken. And now we're going to have to have civil government to punish with the sword evildoers. Um, it was just a second before we move on, uh, Chris brought up a good uh, point. I want to let everyone know, especially if you came in late that, um, or <laughs> I let you in late is a better way to think about it. Um, this will all be recorded Lord willing. It is recording now. Uh, we'll get it to Ryan Martin and it will get put up on uh, the resource page. And I assume the uh, podcast feed as well. If you would much rather listen to me than look at me, uh, which I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't blame you at all. So this is going to be recorded. Um, so, now, where do we stand? Well, I think it's like this. We are made as image. We are in the image of God, but we don't image. So that might be confusing. We are created in God's image, and yet we refuse to image him. We refuse to tell the truth about who he is. So there are glimpses of human beings living as we are created to, right? We call this God's common grace to his image bearers. And we still see the unique role of humanity as being uh, the rulers and the, uh, the ones that have dominion over the animals and the seas and so on and so forth. And then we still see that deep longing, however perverted it might be, for something more than what we can see. But instead of seeking to know and to please God, we seek to please ourselves. And by doing so, we cut ourselves off from any true and lasting value, true and lasting happiness, because we were made in God's image and we were designed to be happy in Him. Everything else doesn't make sense 
if you don't go by the original design. God created us for this reason, and we are bucking against uh, everything that we were created to be by nature because of our sin. So we are created in the image of God so that we have inherent value. We are created in that relationship to God wherein we were responsible, that we had the duty to represent him, to give him our all, to tell the truth about him. And yet we don't image because we want to show our own glory. We want to turn that mirror in on ourselves and live as a law unto ourselves and be our own God's essence. So what are some implications we can think about with this understanding of being made in the image of God? What are some of the things that flow from what I've just said? Well, I have three. The first I want to talk about is that the Bible's teaching on image, on being created in the image of God, answers life's biggest question. What am I here for? Why does anything matter? You and I are here for the pleasure of God. He decided to create, even though he didn't have to, in order to display his goodness and to be enjoyed by his creatures. And God created us to know him, to have fellowship with him. And all pursuits of the so-called good life outside of that is a suicide mission. It's fool's gold. It's never going to happen. You know, maybe somehow uh, you are on this live stream and you aren't a believer. I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that uh, you and I were created in God's image, but have disobeyed him and committed sin, rebellion against God. And in doing so, we have offended this God who is good and holy, who deserves those things, who created us and has rights over us as our owner. And now we can expect his judgment. But the good news is, and it's the good news for all of us, even if we have put our faith in Christ, that God sent another to succeed where we failed, to succeed where Adam failed, where we all have failed. Jesus Christ, which we'll think about in much more detail over the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. But Jesus perfectly obeyed God, told the truth about God, lived out what it means to be made in the image of God, and yet died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved for our sin and, and rose from the dead. So if we repent of our sins and trust in that finished work of Christ, the true image of God, then we can begin to truly image him again by the power of the Spirit. And that is what life is all about. That's the first implication of what it be, means to be made in the image of God. Our hearts will be restless, as Augustine said, or Augustine, uh, until we find our rest in him. Now, the next two things I want to talk about as implications of image are actually spelled out really clearly and really well in our statement of faith. So let me pull that up. On the article on humanity, let me read. We believe that God created all humanity in his own image, male and female, as the crowning work of his creation. And thus, here is what we're going to talk about. Abhors all forms of racism and ethnic or gender superiority. That is, design extends over gender where such divinely ordained differences between male and female are meant for human good and human flourishing. And over marriage, which is the covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and itself is a picture of the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. And over singleness, which is God's gracious gift that he gives in order to serve freely without distraction and divided interest and to remind us that human marriage is not the final destiny of anyone for all those who are in Christ will ultimately and gloriously be wed to Christ himself. That's from our statement of faith. And the two things I want to highlight from that are first, the goodness of gender. And then second, how we should understand race, racism, uh, ethnic tensions, and so on and so forth. So first, the goodness of gender. Genesis 127, it's clear that God made us in his email, made us in his email, made us in his image, male and female. 
So part of God's design to display his glory and to highlight his own character was to create two different kinds of human who are equal in value but differing in role. And you notice that the gender distinctions don't come after the fall. They come before the fall. It was a part of the original good design. The abuse of gender distinctions that we see in our own lives and our own world comes from sin entering the world. But the, the distinctions, the differences, are, aren't themselves the product of the fall. Just like our statement of faith affirms, which uh, you, can, you can pull up on your own there, is part of what it means to uphold the value of human beings as being made in the image of God is to, to champion, to uh, promote God's plan for marriage being between one man and one woman. So when we think about our opposition to so-called same-sex marriage, we should do so in a way that's not rude or boisterous, mocking people whose refusal to image God has taken this form. Instead, what we're doing is holding out the hope of the gospel and leveraging our resources to promote true human flourishing. And that true human flourishing for all of us comes when we live life like the one who gave us life intends. Another implication, the final implication I want to talk about as we uh, think through image is racism, race and racism. So I don't want, well, even if you did answer, you're muted. So um, maybe I should have thrown up a poll here, but I want to ask you the question. I'll let it sit with you for just a second. How many races do you think there are? If you had to answer the question, someone says, how many races are there? How many would you name? All right. You have an idea in your head. Well, the Bible's answer might surprise you. Biblically speaking, everyone comes from one common ancestor, one set of original parents, Adam and Eve. So there's only one nation in that sense. Paul roots our commonality as a race and our common origin, Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man, being Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So out of one man come many nations. So there is a biblical category for nations and tribes and ethnicities and etc but only one biological race. You know, our concept of race that we normally uh, deploy, unfortunately, was developed not uh, but a few centuries ago as a kind of pseudoscience or a false science to legitimize the dehumanization of people groups that people deem to be inferior, either for the color of their skin or their cultural practices or just because they were different. But the Bible comes in and says, no, there's only one original race, human. The only other race is that chosen race, like we sing about in How Sweet and Awful is the Place, which isn't characterized by an ethnicity or a country, but is the people of God themselves, those united to God's Son through the message of the gospel. So there are two races, I guess, either in Adam, which we all are, as we all are born into, and then through repentance and faith, we can be in Christ, that second race, that royal priesthood. So I hope that you can see why the sin of racism which is a thing that still exists, which is a thing that still haunts our country in so many ways, both seen and unseen, must not be tolerated in the church. And let me say that this is where for centuries, lots of people who think like we do have orthodox understandings of the gospel have dropped the ball. Uh, one need only read uh, some Southern Presbyterians who wrote great systematic theologies, but then turn around and with the very same mouth dehumanize those made in God's image, even those who are actually uh, confessing believers themselves. Um, racism ignores the biblical truth that we are all created in the same image, and so we have equal inherent value. 
Racism ignores the truth that we've all sinned. We all deserve God's judgment. And so no one group can claim to have superiority over another. We're all in the same bad boat. And when Christians commit the sin of partiality, which is uh, it's an extension of that sin that James talks about in James 2, and, they, and we favor Christians that look like us, uh, we ignore the truth that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female. We're all united to the same Lord. We have the same identity. We share one faith and one baptism. Now, this, none of this should be used to ignore ethnic diversity, which God says in, in Revelation 5 is good and is a way in which he brings more glory to himself. And we shouldn't dismiss diversity in the name of so-called colorblindness. That doesn't help anybody either. But what we want to do is pursue unity in our diversity. Bunches of different people drawn together by one Lord, made equal, uh, shown to be equal uh, there at the, at the foot of the cross. So we're united in our rebellion and in Jesus Christ, we can be united in our redemption as well. So that's what it means to be created in the image of God. Uh, as I'm pulling up the chat here, anybody have any questions? Any overarching questions that you think would be edifying for the whole as we take uh, a moment here to get a sip of the coffee? We'll wait just a minute or so. Sorry, y'all, I can't unmute everybody because that would be chaotic to say the least. Handout is available, everyone. The handout is available uh, and the link is there in the chat. Any, any questions? So Honeycutt says, uh, to what extent was the image of God desecrated, but not completely destroyed upon the fall? Um, we talked about that just a tad. Um, obviously, it's not completely desecrated. We see it reaffirmed in, um, in Genesis 9 with Noah. And uh, the way I put it is that essentially we're still created in God's image, but we refuse to actually image God. So we're created with that inherent value and with that status of those made in the image of God. And yet we invert the image as it were, turn the mirror on ourselves and try to magnify ourselves and our glory. We try to recast God in our image instead of vice versa. So it still exists uh, but it is perverted, uh, and we don't do that which uh, that we are called to do as image. Um, so, you know, the desecrated, destroyed um, idea, um, yeah, in some senses, uh, that can um, almost, almost, um, almost obscure the question, if that makes sense. Not that, like, you, not that is a bad question, but it's a question a lot of people ask, but it might, it might uh, not be the fullest take on, uh, on image. So I, I like to think of it as we are still in the image of God. And because of sin and because of that ruin from the fall, then we, we don't do what it is to be image. We image ourselves, essentially. Um, so our ability to image God has been totally affected by the fall. Um, 
Sarah, uh, can you speak to the relationship between being made in the image of God and the theology of the body? So Jesus becoming man, resurrection, humans as embodied soul, the eternal soul, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, um, yeah, probably a little much for one ABF, but we can get to some of it for sure. No, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, there's so much that we had to leave out, um, unfortunately. Um, and if whatever, whatever else you want to know in detail, please do send me an email. We'll probably, if it's okay, save a lot of the stuff about Jesus becoming man, um, the son taking on flesh and the resurrection, uh, things like that for when we get to the person and work of Christ, which is next week and the week after. Um, unfortunately, I assume probably virtually, but we will talk about those things. Um, human beings, again, are embodied souls, like you said. So that's the idea of, that Hokuma said of a psychosomatic unity of basically just a soul and body unity. So human beings are, are both. And that is going to mean that Jesus is going to have to have a human nature that is equipped with a human body and a human soul uh, and a human will and so on and so forth. The things we'll talk about in order to redeem us. Like uh, one of the early church fathers said, everything that, uh, everything that is assumed by Jesus is redeemed. So if Jesus doesn't have a human soul and a human body, then he can't save our human soul and human body. Um, I, you know, our bodies, this, these bodies are not eternal. Um, but, um, there is the, uh, the, the resurrection body that we receive because we're united in the resurrection with Jesus Christ. Uh, but we are embodied souls and we can't ignore body or soul. Uh, and we know that our body sometimes affects our spirituality and our spirituality can affect our body in ways that they're, they're united. You can't tear the one from, from the other. Um, but anything else, please send me, uh, in an email and I can get more better answers to you anyway once i'm able to uh, uh research that and or ask my wife so um let's go ahead and and jump back in i'm gonna check the waiting room man that sounded so country i didn't know that i had a southern accent until i married someone from massachusetts waiting room waiting room all right let's jump back into it no one in the waiting room let's talk about sin um so we've established human beings created in the image of god God's creation, indebted to him with everything that we are, owe him our whole lives. He owns us. He is our sovereign. He's our king. And it's in this context that the Bible's teaching about sin arises. So we'll never understand sin, at least not rightly, uh, until we understand God and his relationship to us. And since he's created us, again, we said he owns us. We belong to him. He is our king, our ruler. And sin is rebellion against God's rule. So if you want a short definition of what sin is, it's rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against his claims over our lives. Sometimes sin is presented like a divorce. So sin is the separation of two equal parties. So in the garden, Adam and Eve and God were sort of equals. And there was a rift that, that came as a result of, of sin. And that's partially true but it can miss the full weight of what sin actually is which is cosmic treason sin is much more like treason like cosmic treason we're flying in the face of the one who created everything so he's the one that ordered the universe and says this is what it's all about and human beings have the hubris they have the, the chutzpah to say no actually it's about me uh everything that was pointing to god we're saying hey actually turn that and look at me uh, I want to be God. Uh, we, we invert the entire reason for everything. Uh, Romans 128 says that 
human beings in our sin don't even see fit to acknowledge the ruler of the cosmos. Don't even see fit to, to have God enter our mind. The God who made the stars, who set the boundary of the seas and fashioned each one of us, we can't even find the time to, to contemplate, to acknowledge, to think of. And, and that's how Romans starts with setting up the case against humanity that we all deserve God's judgment. Because God is this God who is worthy of everything and created us to display that worth. And we're trying to put our own worth on display instead. And God's uh, reaction to that is to uh, condemn all of those who don't repent of their sins and trust in Christ who is condemned in our place. Now, let's talk about original sin. So when we start our, under, our talk uh, discussion about sin, we need to think about original sin, which is just a theological term to think about that first sin, uh, that first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God made Adam and Eve in his image and charged them to rule the earth and subdue it. We don't get very far before Adam fails. He completely fails to do what God called him to do. Genesis 3 really is the story, the origin story, if you will, that explains everything that's wrong with the world and with us. Every atrocity, every ounce of suffering, every sinful inclination in your and my heart begin when Adam sinned. They chose to believe the lie that God didn't really care for them. They believed the serpent's hissing when he said, God's holding out on you. Wouldn't you rather be God than serve him? You know, Adam's true sin wasn't so much just eating the fruit. I know that can seem so trivial. Uh, but the eating of the fruit signified something drastically wrong, profoundly disturbing. They were turning their back on their creator to try to find joy and satisfaction apart from him, either in themselves or in the things that, uh, that he created. And with that fall comes death. We know both physical and spiritual death are the destiny of all of those who are our firstborn, all of those who are created. God's judgment in the garden is symbolized by that flaming sword that separates Adam and Eve from the garden, where they used to live in God's presence. And now we're all separated from God by birth, and God's judgment hangs over all of our heads without exception. Each and every one of us has inherited Adam's sin, and like Adam, we face physical and spiritual death. You can think of it as Adam being our representative. His failure brings and equals our failure. We know that from Romans 5, right? Uh, turn your Bibles to Romans 5. Romans 5, 12. Uh, he, we see that sin came into the world through one man, like we said, Adam. And then in 5, 16, and in 5, 18, Paul says that Adam's sin against God, that one man's sin, earned all humanity condemnation. So it's important to note that in original sin, the sin that we inherit from that first sin, it means that we are born both corrupt and guilty. Some have said we only receive Adam's corruption, so that it sort of sets us on a trajectory to be bad. But biblically speaking, it's important to see that we also inherit God, we also inherit, um, inherit Adam's guiltiness. We are guilty because of Adam's guilt. Adam's sin means that we are both born corrupt, lovers of sin, and Adam's sin also means we are born guilty not innocent. We're not blank slates. We're not neutral morally. And that's why David can say in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Adam's trespass brings everyone who has ever been created into corruption and guilt, evil, unbelieving hearts, and the sentence of condemnation. Got somebody in the waiting room. Welcome. 
So Adam's trespass brings us into that state of corruption and guilt, evil, unbelieving hearts, and a sentence of condemnation. Now, you might be thinking at this point, how can this be fair? I never asked Adam to represent me. Why am I condemned because of something I didn't even do? Well, a couple of things. First, God didn't ask you. Um, he didn't ask me. If we wanted to be represented by Adam, we are. He was the first man. Adam and Eve were our first parents, and we don't have much choice in that matter. That's the, that's the, the, the blatant fact of the scriptures is that in Adam, we have all sinned. And secondly, you know, we as Christians especially should love the idea that we can be represented by someone else, that someone else's actions can be reckoned or credited to our own because when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we're represented by him. That's the other part of Romans 5, right? Just like sin and death came because we are represented by Adam, united to Adam, so righteousness and salvation comes because we're united to Christ, whose perfect life, death, and resurrection earns us salvation with God. And then third and finally, you know, honestly, we should be honest with ourselves and not think that we would have fared any better than Adam. Sometimes we, we think, well, if I had been there, uh, I, there's no way that I would have done that. But you think about it, Adam was in the perfect situation in the garden and he turned his back on God. And if you're honest, do you think that you would have done any better? I know when I think about my heart, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think that would be the case with you either. Um, we have all fallen in Adam. Now, a last question regarded, uh, related to original sin is this. Um, did Adam and Eve, did God know, rather, Adam and Eve would sin? Did God know Adam and Eve would sin? Um, so uh, the answer is, uh, yes, God did know and did will it and whatever and, and, and in that in whatever sense that it's appropriate to say that. Um, some have used the fall as a proof text for absolute free will. So they say that God could either not know or could not stop Adam from rebelling against him because to do so would call God's love into question or it would call our real human agency into question. Are we really responsible for our own decisions? But in this text, we can't forget about who God is. And we, we don't want to insert our own fallen reasoning into the biblical equation. Of course, God knew Adam and Eve would fall and even willed it for his own purposes that we might not ever fully understand. God is God. And his perfect knowledge and perfect power mean that everything that happens, happens according to his perfect will. So were Adam and Eve just robots then without a choice to sin or to not sin? Just cogs in this big uh, grand plan of God? No. Adam and Eve both chose willingly to sin. It was their decision. They were responsible for that decision. God didn't have to coerce them to make that decision. So how do we put those two truths together? Um, I think that the French theologian, John Calvin, said it best when he said this uh, pretty pithily. Adam's fall was both foreseen and willed by God, and man's plight is manifestly his own fault. So the fall both willed foreseen by God, and manifestly our own fault. And I think that captures the Bible's teaching nearly exactly. Willed and foreseen by God, absolutely, 100%. Adam's fault, Eve's fault, our fault. So let's move on to now think about what some have called actual sin. So how does this leave us as human beings created in God's image but fallen? 
uh, I want to think about three things that the Bible uh, teaches us about sin, our sin, our state before God and the condition of our hearts apart from God's grace. So as we've thought about already, the Bible is clear that we are all Adam's children, meaning that um, everyone inherits this guilt and corruption. And then not only are we a part of Adam's family, uh, we also act like one of the family, right? Sin is universal and we see it in ourselves and in our, uh, in our society. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way, Isaiah 56, uh, 53, 6. And the first thing that we need to nail down about our sin is that it starts in the heart and only then does it work out in what we do. So for a long time, and maybe many of us growing up, thought about sin as just the bad things that we do. So we aren't necessarily bad people. We just do bad things from time to time, right? So that way sin is kind of distanced. Uh, we're distanced from our sin because only sometimes we do it, uh, but it's not really who we are. But the Bible says something completely different. It says that we are not sinners, called sinners, because we sin or do sinful things. Instead, we sin, we do those sinful things because we at our core, at the very root of who we are, are sinners. Jesus said it. It's from the heart that the mouth speaks. Out of the good treasury, a man brings out the good things. And for those who are fallen, even image bearers of God, we bring from our evil hearts, from our evil treasuries, the evil things. What comes out reveals what's inside. The sins that we commit are more like symptoms of the terminal disease that we have in our hearts, that disease called sin. Our whole nature is corrupted. We're dead in sin. We're blind to God's glory, and so on and so forth. And this is what theologians mean when they talk about sin as corruption, which we'll see is the first side of the coin, so to speak, that is the Bible's teaching on sin. Our whole selves are controlled by sin. So that sin isn't something that just happens to us, but rather something that we seek out with our whole hearts. Friends, sin isn't just the absence of doing what God would have us to do. It's also the love for things contrary to God's will. Human beings are lovers without exception. We will find joy, satisfaction, spend our affections on something. And sin is finding that joy, finding that satisfaction in everything other than God, finding our highest joy in spite of God even. We aren't primarily victims of evil, but lovers of evil. So sin doesn't just happen upon us. We seek it out. Our hearts are like sin factories. Um, and if, if we just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that's the sense we get. If you have your Bible, again, turn to uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As we're turning there, notice I said we aren't primarily victims of evil, but lovers of evil. Um, that does not mean that there aren't ways in which we can be victims of evil perpetrated against us. It just means that we all also are lovers of evil and those who perpetrate that evil, just to be clear. Um, so Ephesians 2, I still have to do General Electric Power Company. You know that? Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. All right, Ephesians 2. And you were once dead, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he starts off by saying you were dead, and then talks about everything that we did. So in our death, in our love of sin, we are dead people that are extremely vigorous in our pursuit of the things contrary to God's will. So we are prisoners, but it's like we're prisoners that shackled ourselves to the wall. We, we tighten our chains. We love them. And that's how the Bible presents all of us. And it's from that posture, a fallen nature, a dead heart, blind eyes, that we do the outward observable things that we normally associate with sin. So the pattern is easy to see in a text like Romans 1 as well, in 18 through 32, where he starts, we've exchanged God's glory for a lie, the heart of sin, that sort of inversion of what it means to be made in God's image. And then not till the very end of that does he get to, um, they exchange natural relations. He talks about homosexuality, he talks about a whole list of things that come as a result of that rebellion against God, of our hearts that are sin sick and are ruined by the fall, to quote uh, a hymn. But there is a second thing that we need to see about how the Bible presents sin, that second side of the coin, so to speak. And that is guilt. We aren't just corrupt, but we are guilty. And guilt can be easily misunderstood, especially in our culture today. So I'm not talking mainly about the sense or the feeling of guilt that you and I might feel, right? Um, I feel guilty. And that can be something that we try to escape. Uh, Sometimes we can feel guilty for no reason when we shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, But here I'm talking about our objective judicial guilt before God because of our sin against him. So an objective, it doesn't matter if you feel it or not, um, a guilt before God. So if you think about a courtroom, if the judge finds you guilty, then it doesn't matter if you feel guilty or not, right? Uh, And when God is the judge, if he says you are guilty, then you are guilty. And we are all left to ourselves guilty before God because of who we are and what we do as those who are in rebellion against him. The sentence, the declaration over all of us is condemned. That's what Jesus says. He says that the wrath of God remains on everyone who has not believed in the Son and repented from their sins and turned to him for forgiveness in John 3.36. So we're both corrupt and we're guilty. Our plight is this, that we are corrupt down to our bones and we are condemned before God. We hate God. And in this sense, we have to say God hates us. That's our problem. And for that reason, the third and final thing that we need to know about our sin is true. For the reason that I've just said, this is true. We are unwilling and we are unable to save ourselves or to even avail ourselves of the salvation that God provides in his son. You may have heard this illustration. So we are drowning and God is in a boat and he has a life preserver and he slings the life preserver out to us. But we have to, out of our own free will, grab that life uh, preserver in order to be saved by God, right? So you see a kind of God does his part, we do our part, a synergy in a sense. Now others, to try to highlight both the things we've talked about in our sinfulness and then the priority of God's sovereign grace, have said, no, it's more like we are dead at the bottom of the ocean and God reaches in and grabs us and pulls us out. 
right? That's how we're saved. But even that actually, uh, even though it's better, still kind of falls short. Why? It's because we're not just unable to respond and be saved on our own. We don't want to. We're unwilling. It's, it's like we swam to the bottom of the ocean and are trying to dig through the sand down through the very earth's core to get away from God. It's from that posture, actively loving and pursuing sin, running as far away from God as we possibly could, that God, by his grace, rescues us. Our sin nature leaves us unwilling and unable to respond to God in any other way than in hatred and hostility. Now, brothers and sisters, there's no doubt that that is very bad news. Very bad news. We're bad-natured sinners who love evil with every part of us. And that's the idea of total depravity. We're not absolutely as bad as we possibly could be in that we uh, still can do, humanly speaking, good things, like build hospitals or give money to charity. But it does mean total, every bit of us has been corrupted. Our minds, our wills, every single aspect of who we are has been destroyed in that sense by the fall. And insofar as we're not able uh, to, to please God, every bit of our being is turned against God. All of our uh, members, as it says in Romans 6, are used as instruments of unrighteousness. Uh, even the good that we do, we do as acts done in defiance against the living God, apart from acknowledging him, apart from trusting in him. We do those things to, to build ourselves up, to try to justify ourselves before God, uh, like we don't need him to do that. We are lost, and we face God's judgment. And that's, uh, that's really the, the end of the matter when it comes to us and ourselves. But that's where the good news comes in, just like in Ephesians uh, 2, right? In Ephesians 1 through 3, 2, 1 through 3, we read, our situation and then Ephesians 4 starts out or 2 4 starts out but God but God this is where the good news comes in and if we understand if understanding the image of God sets us up to understand our sin then understanding our sin sets us up to consider the God man Jesus Christ who took on flesh to redeem us from our sin to give us a new nature by the power of the spirit through the new covenant and give us eternity with God living before him with the holiness and the happiness that we were created for. And we're going to talk about that solution ad nauseum over the next couple of weeks with Christology. And then later on the, and down the road, when Chris talks about uh, how God saves us uh, by the power of the spirit and, and his eternal plans and so on and so forth. Any questions? Any questions? That is all I have this morning. Any questions about, about those things? I saw some earlier. I got, Go ahead. You hear me? Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, having that conversation with someone when you're trying to explain man's depravity and, you know, I mean, is it appropriate to tell someone that if you're not a Christian and you do something good, you're just doing it for your own glory? I mean, I've, I've kind of played that out in my head a few times and it's just kind of, you know, like, nurses volunteering to go help out people in the coronavirus infected areas, you know? Yeah. Um, you're just doing that because you love yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You definitely, um, you definitely would want to think carefully about how you put it, but definitely um, if someone was trying to use that to, to say, no, I am actually a good person, then you just highlight how good and holy God is and how even those good things that we do 
are, are not enough to make us right before God. Because everything that we do, everything that we are is tainted by sin and is, is not done in reliance on God. So you can tell them that, hey, you can't use that in, in an attempt to say, I actually don't need God. I'm a good person. Um, so maybe that's a good way to think about it, to say, hey, even the good that you do, because God is so good, is not going to cut mustard at, at, on the last day. You're going to need Jesus's perfection uh, to stand before you so that all of your good deeds uh, don't amount to anything before God. Uh, because again, they're not, they're not done perfectly. They can be done with selfish motives. And we all know that we can do things um, with, uh, with mixed motives. Um, and, and they're never going to be good enough for God. That's why Jesus alone is good enough for God. So I'd probably go at it something kind of like that. Okay. All right. Well, thank uh, you for putting this together. Gosh, yeah. Um, so Scott Belinsky says, what's the connection between Jesus being the image of God and our being made in God's image? Um, man, where to start? Uh, so Jesus is the image of God. Insofar as he is the second person of the Trinity, he is God himself. Uh, and in his humanity, perfectly images God so that he perfectly reveals who God is and what he's like. You want to see who Jesus is? You want to see who God is? Look to the Son. In fact, that's really how we know that God is triune, that the Father sends the Son and, uh, and the Son and the Father send the Spirit. Um, so we, as we look to image God as people have that have been recreated by the power of the Spirit, we are walking uh, in the, the steps that Jesus himself has walked. We are being patterned after his perfect humanity. So when we want to be Christ-like, it's because Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God, both in, obviously, his, in his divine essence, but also in his human nature as he tells the truth completely about God. He is a a prophet par excellence insofar as insofar as he always tells the truth about God. He perfectly reveals God to us. Um, and as the spirit, as the spirit uh, makes us new and makes us holy, he's making us more like Jesus's perfected humanity. Um, Scott, I can tell you more about that more later if that was insufficient, Scott. Um, let's see. Fair question. Only God's, uh, only God's questions can be good because only God's questions can be good. Do you think, <laughs> uh, do you think it was a good question? Uh, it was both good and fair. I don't see the need to, uh, to distinguish between the two good and fair. Uh, any other, any other questions? Uh, I think that another, um, is that, Scott, is that what um, uh, old Barrett's book is about? Honeycutt, how is the image of God related to kingship and dominion? Uh, so, yeah, um, being made into God's image, um, uh, like we said, means that we were created uh, sort of royally. We were given the job description of filling the earth, subduing it, um, and to have dominion over the plants and the animals to rule underneath God's authority. So there's a sense in which that continues, right? Because we still have pets, right? We still eat 
not eat, not eat pets, but eat other uh, food, other animals for food and things. And if you don't, you still eat plants more than likely. So you're dominating something. Um, but the idea that we rule under God's authority in some senses has been shirked because we try to rule according to our own authority. Great dog there. Great, great uh, dominion, Jared. Um, <laughs> Melissa said it might come to that I assume in, uh, in reference to eating our pets oh let's hope not um, we are just now getting a dog so I guess we'll see um, any, other, any other questions I think you could send me more if you want more um, or I'll just make you you'll go read just go read Kingdom of Covenant if you haven't already if you have read it again you're quarantined you anything to do what kind of coffee am I drinking Onyx uh, Southern Weather even though I'm sorry, Scott, I made it in my drip pot. I'm also sorry if there's Abby uh, or uh, Bear. That I'm sorry if I've disappointed you by drinking your uh, precious coffee through a uh, drip pot. But that's where we're at. But we do drink the good coffee. Also, Dunkin' Donuts sometimes. That's our alternate cheaper coffee because we're from, uh, we're from well, we're not from, my wife's from New England. <laughs> I don't think that UBC has a... Uh, a statement of faith position on um, eating pets, uh, Rose family. And so you can follow your own conscience on that matter. We won't divide fellowship over it. <laughs> Any other questions before we uh, get ready to, uh, to hear Brad's uh, uh, message and listen to some of God's songs? You have a couple of minutes for some, for some typing. Any other, like any bigger questions or insufficient answers, send to my email and I will try to uh, do something better. Michael Gaddy, writing a position paper. <laughs> um, Steven says, not eat, not eat the, um, not eat pets. It's great to see though our, uh, our elders uh, in unity, even where they disagree. <laughs> Anything else, guys? Anything else, guys and gals? Thank you so much uh, for the, uh, accompanying me on this maiden voyage of uh, um, teaching Sunday school on Zoom. This is the first time I've Zoomed Garrett and I've Zoomed my life group and uh, Zoomed Matt right before this to make sure the connection was good. So this is something new and uh, I think the material will be better next time too because um, I've already taught it. So hopefully it's good. It's going to be, I won't say it's long. It is long now, but uh, by God's grace, it'll be shorter come next Sunday. Scott says, thanks for, thanks for teaching, Colton. Uh, you're welcome, man. Uh, could you restate what it means to be made in the image of God? It means to be created in a relationship to God where we are responsible to represent him, to tell the truth about his character through our lives and our loves and our worship of him. Uh, and uh, then as, as image, we are to uh, have dominion and to fill the earth and subdue it, which actually in the, uh, as we think about it, coming through fulfillment in Christ means that we uh, should image God as a church, as we live holy lives and as we practice membership and discipline and keep uh, God's dwelling place, the church pure and extend its borders through missions and evangelism. But it means to be representative of God, made like statues of God that point back to God uh, with our lives. Um, that's what we are supposed to do as image. Scott, you almost, uh, you almost got me going on Don't Fire Your Church Members by Jonathan Lehman. Um, read that book as well. 
Um, did you just ask again? Oh, I thought you asked again, Scott. Anything else? Couple more seconds here. Uh, it's on the bookstall. Heck yeah. All right, everyone. Um, let us go ahead and call it here and we will see you next week. Send